0: All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. In this session, we come to a very well-known section of Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 7, 13 through 25. It's very well-known, and it's often misunderstood. And the reason it's misunderstood is because we read Paul's words, and we resonate with them. We feel like, oh, I know that. I experienced that. Yeah, that's me. And as a result of resonating with it, we, we fail to push pause first and hear what Paul is actually saying before we figure out how that relates to us. And so our own nodding in agreement with Paul and resonating with, with what he's saying causes us to oftentimes mishear his point. So let me set the context for this. Then we're going to work down through the text, and then we're going to come back and try to understand a little more fully what Paul is actually doing by what he says here, all right? And so remember the context in this second major section of Romans, chapters 5 through 8, Paul is dealing with how Jesus has undone the sin that Adam unleashed on the world, how Jesus has done so much more than Adam possibly even did by virtue of unleashing evil in this world, right? He set that up at the end of chapter 5, and in doing so, he said that somehow and some way, the law, meaning the Mosaic law, was complicit with sin and death that the law came in, he says, that transgression might increase. And then as we moved here into chapter 7, Paul actually said that we had to be released from the law so that we could bear fruit for God. And the reason for that was because, again, the law somehow got tangled up with sin and fanned into flame sinful desires so that we actually bore fruit for death. That's 7.5. And then here in 7.7, All the way down through the end of the chapter, then Paul is amplifying what he means by that. What's the problem with the law? And so in our last session, he asked the question and answered, is the law sin? And he said, no, the law is not sin. The law is holy and righteous and good. But sin somehow took advantage of the law and used it as a base of operations and stirred up in us all sorts of sinful desires. Here in seven, thirteen through twenty five, the question that he is asking is, well, then, did the law, he calls it that which is good, right? He had just said in verse twelve that the law is holy and righteous and good. So did did that which is good become a cause of death for me? That's the question. So, okay, the law may not be sin, but somehow the law stirred up sinful desires when it came on the scene of history, right? And he speaks past tense there in verses 7 through 12, because he's dealing with that historical moment where, what was it like when the law showed up on the scene of history? And he says, when the law showed up on the scene of history, instead of actually curbing sin, it stirred up sin. And he says, I died, right? Like, remember, he's using I, uh, to mean not just himself, but really the experience of God's people, Jews particularly, when they encountered the law, when the law came in history. And so the law caused death. And so he says in verse 13, the question, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? And then the initial statement of the answer, may it never be. And this has been his pattern all through chapter 6 and 7 ask a question say may it never be and then explain why that's the case and that's exactly what he does here in 7 13 through 25 so it's really important that we hear the question and what the question is about the question is a question about the Mosaic law the Torah the Old Testament law he's he's trying to help us understand what the problem with the law is and that it's not because the law itself is bad. The law is good. It's just that the law had bad raw material to work with. It had broken, fallen, in Adam humans to work with and it couldn't change that fundamental problem with humanity. So even though it was telling those in Adam humans good things to do, those in Adam humans failed to do it. That's the problem. And that's the problem he highlights here in this section of Romans chapter 7. So let's work down through the text, highlighting some of the main points he makes in the various sections of the text. And then we'll come back and kind of give a high-level overview of exactly what Paul is doing here in this section, all right? And so the first thing he does is he asks the question and gives a basic statement of answer to the question in verse 13. So verse 13, therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. That's the question. And the obviously the immediate answer is may it never be, but in the second half of verse 13, he sort of gives an initial statement of the answer. So here is the initial explanation of the answer. Rather, not the law, but sin. Rather, it was sin that became the cause of death. That's the implied full statement. So did the law become a cause of death? No, it was sin that became the cause of death. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment Sin would become utterly sinful. Do you understand what he's getting at there in that point? What he's saying is, no, it wasn't that the law was a cause of death. Sin was the cause of death, but as he had just explained in verses 7 through 12, sin took advantage of the law, and so somehow sin affected, caused, brought about my death through that which is good, i.e., through the law, the good commandments of the law, so that through the commandment, What would happen is sin would be seen to be utterly sinful. That's what one of the major purposes of the Old Testament law. It was to help us understand how awful, how dreadful, and how sinful sin actually is. That in our trying to keep the Old Testament law and repeatedly failing, Paul is saying, we recognize thus how sinful sin actually is, how deep it goes, how toxic it is, and how therefore sinful it really is. So that's the initial statement of the answer there in verse 13: that the cause of death isn't the law, it's sin that co-opted the law. And in doing it through something that's good, it actually shows us how really destructive and awful and devious sin is actually is. Now in verses 14 through 25 then, Paul expands and expounds on that basic answer. Notice how verse 14 begins with the word for. He's going to explain the answer. Wait, help us understand, Paul, how is it that by sin taking advantage of the law, it shows that the law is utterly sinful? And so in verses 14 through 25, Paul is going to help us see how that's the case he does so in a a few parts, all right? So the first part of his explanation of this answer is verses 14 through 16, where what Paul is going to say is is that my conflicting desires show that, acknowledge that the law is good. And so that's the first uh, kind of sub-point he's going to make, right? That the law is good, and sin took advantage of a good thing, and that shows how sinful is. And so My very own conflicting desires, he says, actually is acknowledgement that the law itself is good. So verses 14 through 16, let's read it and hear him make that point. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do, then I agree with the law, confessing that it's good. And so Paul's point in describing this struggle as he tried to obey the law as a Jew under the law, right? And he's really describing in very personal, passionate terms, hence the, the present tense hence the I. This is so Paul can speak so personally and passionately about it in hopes that he doesn't drive away his Jewish audience and the Jews who are listening to what he says, right? He wants to say some things about the law and help us understand the problem of the law, but he doesn't want to push away the Jews in his audience. So he speaks very personally and passionately about it as a way to say what he wants to say without pushing them away. And so by talking about um, my, quote unquote, right, it's his and every other Jew's experience under the law, or even a Gentile under the law, doesn't matter, right? Uh, as he ex- talks about his conflicting desires, he says, well, that acknowledges that sin is bad and the law is good. And so uh, he's making this point to help us realize that the law is not the problem in the sense that the law itself is bad. The law is not the problem in the sense that the law is the cause of death. The law is actually good, and my own conflicting desires in trying to keep the law acknowledge that the law is good. Okay, then, if that's the case, then where does the problem lie? Why is this so hard? What what really is the problem, And, and how come... This shows that the law is good and sin is utterly sinful. In what way is this playing out? Well, Paul says in verses 17 through 20, the reason for this, the reason, quote unquote, I fail to do God's law is because sin is actually resident in me. And so again, it's sin's ultimate fault, sin's the ultimate problem, but the law couldn't stop me from sinning. And so ultimately, the law is still good, uh, but sin is the problem, and the law is too weak, too deficient to actually stop the sin that is resident within me. So listen to what he says in verses 17 through 20 as he makes this point. He says, So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I don't want. But if I am doing the very thing I don't want to do, well, then I'm the, no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And so the, the ultimate source of the problem is sin, and in some sort of way, sin takes up residence in us, in our flesh, in our body, in us as people. And even though the law is good, and even though the law tells us the right way to go, we fail to do it and we continue to sin, he says. And as a result, we not only acknowledge that the law is good, we recognize like how deep and how disastrous And how destructive sin is, that it somehow dwells in me. And as Paul goes on then in explaining this problem, he says essentially in verses 21 through 23, he brings really these two points together, that the law is good and our conflicting desires acknowledge that, and yet I am bad and the law can't change that. He brings those two points together in verses 21 through 23, and he says this, by way of summary, he says, so I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully con- concur with the law of God in my inner man, right? As as I Paul was basically saying, like as a Jew, as I would read the Mosaic law, I look at that and I'm like, oh, yes, yes, I want to do that. So I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. But... I see a different law at works in the parts of my body. And that law, he's actually going to call it the law of sin and death in chapter 8, at the very beginning of chapter 8. So he's got this conf- this conflicting law. He looks at the law of God and it's like, that's good, I want to do it. But at work in the parts of his body is a different law, the law of sin and death, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, meaning in the parts of my body, in the members of my body, as he just said a second ago. And so, so here he is in this struggle and he's like, I want to keep the Old Testament law, right? I wanted to do what was good. And yet I didn't because there's this other law at work in me. That's, How sinful sin really is is that somehow sin gets into us and into our body, and even God's good law wasn't able to keep Paul and others from sinning. So, in view of this tension, in view of how sinful sin is, verses 24 and 25 then uh, are really like a cry of anguish from the perspective of this person who wants to obey God, but is failing to do it, and that his cry of desperation and despair actually actually, uh, in anticipation really uh, brings out the solution, hints at the solution that Paul is going to explain more fully in chapter 8. So Paul will explain, what's the solution to this struggle that we're reading about in chapter 7? Well, the solution will be t- detailed in chapter 8, but here in this cry of anguish at the end of chapter 7, um, Paul anticipates that solution as he does so. So listen to what he says in verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free from this body of death? Right? He's just described how sin gets into our body and takes up residence in our members. And now we find ourselves continuing to sin, even though we don't want to sin and we, we love God's law. So who's going to set me free from this? And in anticipation of the full answer that he's going to explain in chapter 8, Paul says at the first half of verse 25: Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the solution to this struggle. God, what God did in Jesus is what's going to set us free from this struggle. And then the second half of verse 25 is a, a final summary of the problem that he's just described in verses 14 and following. So he says, So then, therefore then, let me summarize the point. Therefore then, on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving The law of God, the Torah, the Old Testament law, I'm serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh and my fallenness, I'm serving the law of sin. And so that's the point he makes. And he has described in passionate, personal detail this tension, this struggle, struggle, this angst. Um, that that needs a solution. He's hinted at the solution here, the first part of verse 25. He'll get the full solution in chapter 8. But for now, we realize, oh, so it's not just that the law is bad. It's that the law was working with bad, raw material, fallen human beings, and the law couldn't make those fallen human beings right by itself. It needed help. It needed something greater. The law wasn't good enough to fix in Adam, people, uh, sin was so deceitful, de- so destructive, and so toxic that even though the law is good and said the right thing to do, it couldn't ultimately solve the problem of sin. Now, let's reflect a little bit on exactly what Paul is doing to make sure we hear him well, all right? And let's begin by, let me just asking you a question. Can you identify with the struggle Paul describes here in these verses? I know a lot of people can't. I know I can, like I can sympathize with this struggle. I can sympathize with his anguish. I've been there. I've felt that, right? But here's the thing: our identifying with Paul oftentimes causes us to miss the larger point he's making. And we jump immediately to thinking Paul is describing our struggle with sin before we hear the point Paul is making about the law. So in all cases of Bible study, we need to make sure we hear what the author is saying first. Once we hear and understand what he's saying, then we figure out, How do we respond to that and what what do we do with that? And so we have to keep in mind that Paul is answering a question about the law of Moses, right? Did that which is good, the law of Moses, become a cause of death for me? The answer is no, the law isn't so much the cause of death as it is sin. It's just that sin took advantage of the law and the law wasn't strong enough by itself to combat sin. And so he's really dealing with the Old Testament law. And he's doing so because of the standard Jewish, really, prescription for this very struggle in Paul's day and age. The struggle that Paul describes in these verses was well known among Jewish rabbis of Paul's day, among the Jews of Paul's day, they they understood it. That's why Paul can speak so personally and passionately in the present tense about it is because he's speaking as a Jew to Jews. This is what it's like to be under the law, Paul is essentially saying. And we know this. This tension and this struggle was well known in Paul's day. And Jewish rabbis all recognized it, and they actually had a whole tradition traditional form of teaching about it. They they spoke about the yetzer hara, the evil impulse that was at work in the parts of people's bodies, and it caused people to sin. In fact, uh, one rabbi actually put it this way. He said, when a man stirs up his passion and is about to commit an act of lewdness, so he's about to do something wrong, all the parts of his body are ready to obey him. On the other hand, when a man uh, wants to perform some act of piety, right, to do some religious good, righteous act, all the parts of his body, well, they become laggard and lax because the impulse to evil inside his parts is ruler of all of his body parts. This yetzer hara gets into him and causes him to be eager to do wrong and slow to do what's right, is what that rabbi is saying. Another rabbi just very, you know starkly said woe is me because of my evil impulse my evil inclination um, or another rabbi said a man's impulse to evil renews itself every day like rabbis had this understanding of this struggle that Paul is actually getting at here and remember Paul grew up as a Jewish rabbi that was his that was where he was heading in life before he met Jesus he grew up with this tradition of explaining and describing the struggle of sin and human evil. And according to the rabbis, and according to this tradition, how do you curb the evil impulse? What's the solution to the struggle of the evil impulse? Well, here's what the rabbis taught. Um, The school of Rabbi Ishmael taught, when this repulsive wretch, the evil impulse, meets you, drag him immediately to the... Beit Hamadrash, which means the house of study. In other words, what he's saying is when, you, when the evil impulse comes upon you, go study the Torah. And what Paul is saying here in Romans 7 is, come on, rabbis, let's be honest. You know it doesn't work. I know it doesn't work. Just studying the Torah, while, while good and helpful and teaches us the right way, and while the Torah is to be praised and is wonderful for telling us the course of righteousness, It's not the source of that righteousness. And all our study isn't helping us overcome the evil impulse. And so the ultimate point of really all of Romans 7 is the Torah, the Old Testament law, could never be the final solution to sin and death. Um, The Torah, as good as it was and as good as it is, never could deal with the yetzer hara, could never deal with the fallenness of humanity that got into us and ultimately set us free from sin and death. So the law, even though it was holy and righteous and good, somehow in some way became complicit with sin and was not the ultimate solution to sin. And even though Paul is speaking in the present tense here in this section of Romans, he's doing that for a very good reason. In 7, 7 through 12, he spoke in the past tense because he was describing the historical reality of what it was like when the Old Testament law came on the scene at Mount Sinai. Here in verses 13 through 25, he speaks in the present tense because he's speaking of the present reality of what it's like to be a Jew under the law without the Spirit of God and without knowing Jesus. And what he's trying to help his Jewish audience come to terms with is that, yes, I know you love the law, and I know the law is good, but the law does not set you free from sin and death. For that, we need a greater solution. And so he speaks personally and passionately about what it's like in Paul's day to be a Jew living under the law, and he does so, once again, to put the law in its proper place. And in fact, even though Paul speaks in the present tense, he can't be describing his own Christian experience and what he expects to be the normal Christian experience unless he's contradicting everything he says in chapters six and eight. For example, in chapter 6, three times chapter 6, verse 6, chapter 6,17, and verse 20 of chapter 6, Paul says, "We're no longer slaves to sin. But here in 7:14, he says, "I'm sold as a slave to sin." Or again, in 723, he says, I'm the prisoner of the law of sin. And so how can it be that he's no longer a slave to sin, but he's sold as a slave to sin? That would be a direct contradiction of what he said in just the preceding couple of paragraphs, right? Or he says in 725, I serve the law of sin. And he uses the word serve there to serve as a slave. And yet he said in chapter 6, and again in chapter 8, that we're not Uh, under the law of sin, right? We're not slaves to sin. In fact, 8.2 says we've been set free from the law of sin. And so if, if Paul is describing his own Christian experience or the normal Christian experience in verses 13 through 25, then he directly contradicts everything he says in the surrounding context. And we know that's just not going to be the case. Paul's going to be very consistent in what he says. Uh, In chapter 7, 13 through 25, he he says he's of the flesh, right? And yet in chapter 6, and chapter 8, he says, we're not of the flesh. In 7, 5, you're not in the flesh. In 8, chapter 9, we're not in the flesh. And yet here he's of the flesh, right? And so if Paul is describing in seven: thirteen through twenty five what his present experience was with the spirit of God and the regeneration that brought, then he directly contradicts everything he says in the surrounding context. And so even though Paul speaks in the present tense, he's not really describing so much his present struggle as he is describing what it's like to be a person who tries to please God by virtue of the Old Testament law, without the spirit of God's help and without um, being in Jesus. While still being in Adam and not having the spirit, here's what it's like to try to keep God's law, to try to do what's right. That's what he's describing in 7, 13 through 25. And he does that, again, primarily to help us realize that the solution to sin and death is not the law of Moses. So in the long run... The big issue in in Romans 7, 13 through 25 is the Torah versus the Spirit, the Mosaic law versus the Spirit. It has more to do with how a person relates to God and how a person intends to please God or attempts to please God and how God intends now in Christ to govern his people. Now that Messiah has come and the Spirit has been poured out, the day of Torah is over, And the time of the Spirit has come. And so that's where Paul turns in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and following. And he goes on to say that we've been set free from the law of sin and death, and we now walk by the Spirit, and we can please God because the Spirit helps us do so. So let me just offer one concluding reflection to this section as we take what Paul has said and we begin to try to figure out, what do we do with it then in our present context? We're not living underneath the Old Testament law, right? And so our situation is different. Nevertheless, we do identify with the struggle. And sometimes, even as followers of Jesus, particularly when we're first learning to walk by the Spirit and please God in that way, we relate to this. Or sometimes, we have an ongoing sin struggle, and it marks us, and we're trying to figure out how to overcome it, right? Right? And so I want us to hear what Paul says about the nature of sin in Romans 7, 13 through 25, because it's really, really powerful and important for us. And that's this. Paul makes it abundantly clear in this paragraph that sin is an inside job. And therefore, sin is is going to have to have an inside solution. And that's why the Old Testament law failed. The Old Testament law failed because it stood outside a fallen, in-Adam human being saying, do this, do that, don't do this, make sure you go there, do this, right? And so it was outside of us telling human beings the right thing to do, but it was still dealing with um, broken, in-Adam people who had sin, Paul says, dwelling within them. Sin is an inside job. Uh, sin gets into us and forms a certain kind of character within us. It taints our desires, it spoils our loves, and it orients us around ourself. And in doing so, it somehow gets into our body and our default reactions, our instinctive default reactions get somehow implanted in our body and we just... L- we learn to respond in all sorts of wrong ways. We learn to respond with anger rather than with patience and grace. We learn to respond to attractive people with lust rather than with respect and dignity. We learn to be bitter and passive aggressive rather than to be gracious and forgiving, right? So sin is is deep, deep within us. It's utterly sinful, as Paul says in this section. And just knowing the good is not enough to help us become genuinely good. We need internal, supernatural help to become the kind of people who can do routinely and regularly the things that God desires. Now, we're never going to be free from sin perfectly, completely, right? Like The the presence of sin is going to be all around us until Jesus returns. And so, between now and the time either Jesus returns or we die and go to heaven, we're never going to be 100% holy, right? We're never going to totally do everything that's right. We're never going to totally quit sinning. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point isn't that, um, you know, by the Spirit, when he gets there in chapter 8, we can be perfectly holy. Uh, Paul knows the struggle of sin. He's described it in different ways in his letters, even in the context of Romans 7. It's just that this isn't the way Paul describes it. Paul doesn't describe it as being a prisoner of sin. Paul doesn't describe it with this kind of angst when he describes the struggle of sin. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, he says, You've died to sin, therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And then he goes on in verses 12 and 13 to talk about what we need to do to make sure sin doesn't reign. There's going to be effort. There's going to be work. It's going to be a bit of a struggle. Or in chapter 8 of Romans, Paul actually says in verses 12 and 13 that we're not under obligation to the flesh to do what it says, but if by the Spirit we're putting to death the deeds of the body. And so there's effort, there's struggle, there's work to be done. So Paul knows we're going to have to combat sin on a regular basis and we're going to have to be vigilant, right? And so when you read Paul's words in context, He's not saying that this describes the normal Christian life. And he's also not saying there won't be any struggle with sin. Paul believes there's going to be effort. There's going to be combat needed, putting to death the deeds of the body. But we're going to do that by the power of the Spirit. Why? Because sin's an inside job. and Sin gets into our bodies. Sin gets into our habits. Sin gets into our motives and our thinking. And we can't always see it. And we need supernatural internal help to become the kind of people that God desires. And God provided that by virtue of his spirit. And that's where Paul turns next in Romans chapter 8.